So we've made it to 50 episodes. I had no idea how much work I was getting myself into, but all the positive feedback is just beautiful. And the show has more listeners than I ever could have imagined. Just a year later, I would have never thought that we'd be where we are right now. And it's all because of you guys. So I, I want you guys to know that I truly appreciate you spreading the word and telling your friends about the show. And uh, it's the only thing that's grown the audience. And there's no advertising or anything like that. It's all because of you. And I want you guys to know how much I appreciate that. So thank you very much. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. So I'm going to turn the mic over to Amy Lashley, and she's going to explain what we're up to this week. The most common question Otis gets asked is, when is he going to make a show about himself? Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) We weren't really sure how to do that, but uh, Amy came up with an idea. So I made a list of the stories that I like to hear, and I think you'll probably like them too. I think that's a good idea. I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's Amy Lashley and Otis Gibbs. Before I tell this story, I want to say right up front, I don't mean any disrespect to any of the gentlemen who were in this story. Please believe me when I say that, and I'm only going to mention the names of the clubs so that people uh, understand who I'm talking about. So in the... The mid-1980s, I was like 18 or 19 years old, and me and my buddy JD were wanting to get a tattoo. And at the time, people just didn't have tattoos. You see frat boys now with full sleeves, and it's no big deal, and and, uh, there's no social stigma. But at the time, people just really didn't have tattoos. If they did, they were in biker gangs or in and out of prison. And uh, for some reason, we wanted to walk down that road and get a tattoo, but uh, there was only one place in Indianapolis that was, there was only one tattoo studio in Indianapolis. So we walk into there and uh, there's bikers and uh, I'm not talking about hipsters on their vintage bikes or whatever. I'm talking about actual bikers. These guys were in the outlaws and uh, they were all hanging out in this tattoo studio. And one of the guys was in a club that was friendly with the outlaws called DC Eagles. And there's a guy named Stoney. And we walked up to him and we're like, hey, man, we'd like to get a tattoo. And he was actually a really cool guy and really nice to us. But he wanted like $35, maybe $40. And we just thought that was a ridiculous amount of money to pay for a <laughs> tattoo, which says a lot about us and our ignorance. But uh, we're like, man, we can't do that. And he's like, well, you guys look like you might be in a band or something. I'm like, yeah, we got a band. He's like, I'll tell you what, our club is having a party this weekend. If uh, you guys want to play this party... I'll give you tattoos. We're like, yeah, we'll do that. You know, we're thinking motorcycle club. 
That sounds like a fun little Sunday, uh, you know, <laughs> go drive around with grandma and the motorcycle club. That's what we're expecting. But he says, actually, it's in Illinois. And uh, I'll take you guys there in my van. I don't want you guys driving separately. You just put all your gear in my van and I'll drive you there. I'm like, okay, sounds weird. But we went ahead and we piled everything in the van and we took off. And on the way there, somebody pulls up a camera and he's like, oh, man, you cannot you can't bring that camera. I'm like, why? He said, well, if you take pictures of uh, anybody, some of the guys have been on America's Most Wanted. And uh, if you try to take their picture, they'll kill you. And we're kind of laughing like, yeah, okay, he's joking. And uh, a few other things come up. And he keeps saying, if you can't do that, man. And his answer to everything is, if you do that, they'll kill you. <laughs> And uh, we started getting a little bit worried, but we're in his van <laughs> heading to Illinois, and uh, we can't really stop. So somewhere along the line, somebody in the van said, Hell's Angels, and he stopped the van, and he looked back, and he's like, I'm telling you right now, if you say Hell's Angels at this party, they will kill you. And <laughs> <laughs> So we're scared to death at this point. We're thinking, what in the hell did we get into? And uh, we get there. And we pull up to this clubhouse. I'm told that it was the Pranksters Clubhouse. And um, there are probably 300 Harley Davidsons lined up down this country road. Everything was surrounded by cornfields as far as you could see. And then there's this little shack of a clubhouse. And um, there's just, you know, for real bikers everywhere. And we walked inside, brought our equipment in. And the guy, Stoney, said, if anything happens, anything bad goes down at all, be sure and tell whoever is giving you a hard time that you're a close personal friend of Stoney and uh, I'll take care of everything. So we're all kind of scared to death at this point, but we set up in this shack and we start playing. You know, a, a few songs in, there were some girls dancing and we're thinking, okay, this is all right. This is going to be fine. We're, you know, playing and playing and then. Somewhere along the line, these guys uh, come up to us and say, you guys have to stop uh, because some of the guys want to kill you because you made their old ladies dance. <laughs> and at this point, we'd only played six songs, and four of them were born to be wild. <laughs> and uh, we're like, are you serious? And like, yeah, we're dead serious. Some of the young guys are really pissed at you guys, and um, you need to stop. You know, the elders are protecting you, but we need to get you out of here right now. And uh, we went ahead and we loaded up everything in the van, and uh, they took us to a hotel in Mantoon, Illinois, and dumped us off. And um, the next week, we got back to Indianapolis, and uh, me and my buddy JD were sitting around. We're like, man, you know, we did our part. We, uh, you know, let's go over there and talk to Stoney. And uh, we're like, Stoney. You know, you promised us tattoos if we uh, would go play your party. And we went and played your party. And uh, he's, he says, you're right. You know, I'm a man of my word. Sit down here. And he gave us these really horrible tattoos. <laughs> it was my very first one. It's some kind of terrible, some kind of a cattle skull or something. It's hard to tell. Yeah, I haven't played many biker gigs since then. <laughs> I grew up in a little town called Wanamaker, Indiana. It's uh, about 30 miles southeast of Indianapolis. It was a little bitty farming community, and we had one day a year where all of the kids would ride their parents' tractors to school. We called it Tractor Day. <laughs> we were very creative people. <laughs> I thought we were some kind of artist colony. 
uh, there are so many creative people in the town. There's folks like my grandfather played bluegrass music, and that's definitely an art form. And uh, my dad liked to get drunk on Friday and Saturday nights and sing along to Jerry Lee Lewis records <laughs> at the top of his lungs. And I think that's an art form. And then there was a strange woman who lived down the street who liked to walk out into the yard and paint pictures completely naked. <laughs> and as a young teenage boy, I could definitely see the artistic value in that. So uh, my parents would work a couple different jobs apiece trying to make ends meet, as many of us do through hard times. And it would fall upon some of the strangest individuals to babysit me during the day. And one of these people were my, was my Uncle Briscoe. And he probably wasn't the best choice to be watching this little bitty kid every day because he'd just gotten out of prison. And it turns out he wasn't even my uncle after all. He was just shacking up with my aunt at the time. But uh, he would watch me. And he got really bored watching this little bitty kid every day. So he got this idea. He would take me down to this local honky-tonk saloon. And he could play piano really well, real good piano player. And he would sit me up on top of this old piano they had in the corner. And I would sing Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers songs and stuff like that while he accompanied me. And then the drunks would give me tip money to play whatever their request might be. And then my Uncle Briscoe would take that money and get drunk on it. <laughs> and that's when I first learned how the music industry actually works. But at the end of every day, I would say, Uncle Briscoe, could we please go back again tomorrow? Because I loved it. And he'd say, I'll take you back every day, but you have to promise that you will not tell your parents what we're doing. And I was 26 years old when I finally told my parents. And they were pissed off. <laughs> so when I was a kid, uh, my dad signed up for this contest to win a free trip to Disneyland in Florida. And we'd never really been on a vacation, so he went ahead and filled out all this information. And one of the questions were, you're supposed to say how much money you make. And my dad put down way more money than what he actually made. And, of course, we won the trip. And a lot of other people got to go. And the, the deal was is they were trying to sell timeshares in Florida. And we had to sit through, uh, you know, we had to go down there and sit through their big, long sales speech. So we showed up, and there's a hall full of people who were all winners just like us. And part of the deal was we had to sit there and listen to this. And before they started, my dad stood up and he said, excuse me, but I'd like to be excused. And I said, well, we're sorry, sir. You have to uh, sit and listen to this. And he's like, I can tell you right now, there's no way in hell I'm ever going to move down here to Florida. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he said, well, sir, if you can give me one good reason why you don't, uh, why you're not coming to Florida, we'll, we'll let you leave. He said, because you guys don't sell Stroh's beer, and there's no way I'm ever going to live in a state that doesn't sell Stroh's beer. <laughs> so he said, sir, you can be excused. <laughs> and we went on to uh, Disneyland, and we're walking around, and my dad leaned over to me, and he's like, you see that guy over there? And there was this huge African-American man, just really big guy. He goes, that's Ernie Ladd. I'm like, no way. And and he says, yeah, it's Ernie Ladd. And we were big wrestling fans. We'd go see wrestling all the time. Ernie Ladd was the main bad guy in Indianapolis at that time. He, was, uh, he would feud with Dick the Bruiser. And part of his, he was six foot nine, 315 pounds, and he was a former professional football player. He played for the Chargers and the Bears and the Oilers. And he's just a really big, tough guy, really scary looking. And part of his gimmick was he had this thumb. He would hit people with his thumb, 
And I remember Sam Manneker, the announcer, would, would say, there's something wrong with that thumb. We need to get it x-rayed. Because when he would touch people with a the thumb, they would fall down and just start convulsing, and the whole match would be over. You know, And he'd hold it up into the air, and everybody would boo. So there's Ernie Ladd standing there. And my dad says, you need to go get his autograph. I'm like, no way. I am not going. And I'm just a little bitty kid. And uh, he's like, no, why don't you go over there? So he gave me a you know, little piece of paper and a pencil. And I walked over. And I mean, he was huge, six foot nine. And I'm a little kid. And uh, I said, excuse me, Mr. Ladd, can I have your autograph? And he kind of turned towards me. And I was looking straight up into the air. And he looked like a tree or something. And he's like, well, sure. And he kind of reached over to reach down to grab the piece of paper from me. But all I saw was that thumb coming down at me <laughs> from way up high and just scared the hell out of me. And I screamed and took off running behind my dad <laughs> and got behind his legs and was like, he's going to get me with the thumb. He's going to get me with the thumb. And he finally walked over and uh, told me it was all right. And he's ended up being a nice man. And he had taken a bunch of poor kids to Disneyland out of his own pocket. Like I said earlier, I was a really big wrestling fan as a kid. It was something I shared with my dad, and I loved cheering for Dick the Bruiser. But there's a certain moment when you get too old for it, and it just seemed real cartoony and stupid to me. So I didn't enjoy it anymore. I didn't like it. And I went through quite a long phase in life without digging it. But I remember there was a buddy of mine who was a bartender there in the neighborhood who we found out was a he was wanted to be a professional wrestler, so he was wrestling in this indie circuit. And uh, he asked us if we'd come out and you know watch him. And we ended up going to some diesel garage. This is me, my buddy Jimmy, my buddy Scott, just a lot of friends. We would go down to this diesel garage in the uh, south side of Indianapolis. And they had a wrestling event once a week. And our buddy was the main bad guy. I mean, this was a sociology lesson and a half. It was pretty amazing to see the people who were sitting around. But we would root for him. He was the bad guy. We'd cheer for him. And uh, that messed everything up. People would get mad. There were these really old women who would sit down front. I mean, they were like 70 years old who would sit down front. And when we started cheering for the bad guy, they would walk over and they would call us every name you've ever heard. I mean, they cussed us like sailors. And uh, we kind of enjoyed that. So we'd cheer for the bad guy a little bit more. We finally... I guess they thought that we were messing everything up. We went for months, once a week for months, and uh, they finally thought that we were messing everything up so much that we got barred from going to the indie wrestling matches there in Southside. People asked me the last time I was clean-shaven. It was uh, February 14th, 1992. I just kind of quit my job. I had a change of life. I wanted to do something different with my life and I wasn't really sure what that was but I wanted to walk down a creative road and uh, try to live a creative life and I wasn't really sure what that even meant but um, I ended up having to move back in with my parents for a little bit and was kind of depressed and didn't have anything going and there's a bar up in the north side of Indianapolis called the patio I ended up getting a job working the door there And they paid me $4 an hour, and I would only work about four hours a night. But I didn't have any way to get there. So I was out in Wanamaker with my parents. So I had to walk two miles to the closest bus stop every day. 
And then I would get in a bus, take it downtown, and then get in another bus and go up to Broad Ripple. And it took me at least two and a half hours every day just to get to work to make $4 an hour. But it was, uh, I really liked the people that, that worked, that I worked with and it was just different than anything I'd ever done. And, uh, so I did it. And then at night when I got off of work, the buses didn't run till 8 AM. So I would have to just walk around and uh, waste time until it was time to leave. I'd go sleep on a park bench or I remember there was a bridge I would crawl under for a little bit. And then I would begin that long process to get back home. And I did that for a few months just so I could get something else going. But uh, I finally got me a place up in Broad Ripple. And I worked there for a few years. And like I said before, if you're just making that much money, you know, it just doesn't add up no matter how many days a week you work. There's just not enough. So I was living on about $300 a month. And um, so I would live with multiple people. There was a place that I lived with a bunch of friends of mine we called the Elvis Mission. And it was a two-bedroom apartment. And we had 10 of us living there at any given time. I actually really liked everybody there. It was a it was a good situation, better than you could imagine. And I really enjoyed that. But there was an opening that came up at the Vogue Theater. They needed somebody to change the marquee. And it paid $100 a week. And that's sad that $100 a week was a major raise for me, but, <laughs> but it was. So I jumped on the opportunity. And what, hap- what I would do is if I had a gig in St. Louis, I had to drive back that night so that about 6 a.m. I could change the marquee in the Vogue. But uh, I did that for a while and, and enjoyed it. I remember the Vogue had Johnny Cash coming to play sometime in the mid-'90s. And uh, there was no way they were going to make money on it. This is about a 700, uh, seven or 800 capacity theater type uh, situation. It's a bar theater. There's no way they could make money on this, but they decided that, uh, you know, if they charged a high ticket price or whatever, they could say they had Johnny Cash, which is really, had Johnny Cash play their bar, which is a really noble thing. And they did that. And since I worked there, I got in free. And I remember watching Johnny Cash play. And the thing that struck me was, you had no idea what year it was when you're watching him. You know, what he did was timeless. You know, him and June was there, just the whole band, everything about it was timeless. It had nothing to do with any era or anything. And I really enjoyed that. There was no fad to it. It was just what they did. And it was really natural. So I remember he was playing his last encore and I thought to myself, I thought, man, I'd like to go out back and watch Johnny Cash get on his tour bus and I don't know why I wanted to, but I thought that would be a fun thing to do. So I took off running around the back of the theater, and I'm standing there, and there's a door that comes right out the back of the theater, and then he'd walk about about 40 feet, and he'd get right in the tour bus. So I'm kind of standing there, and the doors open up, and here's Johnny Cash, and he just looked so big and larger than life, and uh, he's walking towards me. And then he looks over, and he looks at me, and I just kind of froze. I thought, oh, my God, Johnny Cash is looking at me. And he's just staring me right in the eye as he's walking towards me. And then his hand starts coming up. I'm thinking, what in the hell is going on here? You know, a little overtaken by the moment. And he wants to shake hands with me. And uh, he's reaching out his hand for mine. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to shake hands with Johnny Cash. And then right when he got about six inches from my hand, somebody hit me in the shoulder and I kind of spun around a little bit 
and I looked over my shoulder and it was John Mellencamp. He'd pushed me out of the way, put his arm around Johnny Cash, and they started to walk onto the tour bus. Johnny Cash looked over his shoulder, looked back at me, and kind of threw his arms in the air like, sorry about that, <laughs> and walked off. The tour bus drove off into the night, and I went around front, and I did my job and changed the marquee. Over the years, I started not enjoying doing interviews at all. And I've just had so many bad interviews. I had one where the very first question was a, a woman said, this is a major radio station, by the way. And the opening question was the woman said, Motley Crue has the most tattoos of any artist, but Def Leppard has none. And then she just looked at me like I'm supposed to, like I'm supposed to comment on that. And there was this long, awkward pause. I said, is that a question? He says, what do you think about that? And I don't know. So I've had so many situations like that. And I end up in, um, people will ask me about things that just are boring. They bore me. And I can hear people listening on the radio or reading their magazine just being completely bored. I don't want to hear, I don't want to be asked about what a song means, you know, or a record. And whenever I, I always thought, man, if I could just if I could just tell stories and maybe make people laugh, I think they would en- enjoy that and then they would uh, f- you know, wonder who I am and then they'd look me up and you know, maybe win people over. So anyway, after all this time, I had a really bad interview in Rotterdam. It was a really large really large station. The guy seemed like a nice enough guy. He's just being a regular guy. We're in this nice studio. But um, right before I went on the air, since he was being such a nice guy, I let my guard down a little bit. Right before we went on the air, there was some music playing. And he said, uh, what do you think about that? And I had this honest moment. I didn't know what it was. But uh, I said, ah, that's not really my thing. So then he comes on the air and he says, uh, I'm here with Otis Gibbs. So, Otis, why do you hate John Mayer? <laughs> And I said, I was thinking, who in the hell is John Mayer? And I think I might have. I said, who is that? I've heard the name. I don't. I've never. I've never heard his music. And he said, That's what was playing before. And just everything went downhill from there. And then I had to spend an hour with this guy. It had the wacky radio guy voice. It was just bad. I'm sure he's the nicest guy with all the best meanings. It just there was no reason for me to be doing that particular show. And um. I thought about it and thought, you know, I don't have to participate in this stuff. I realize that these things happen, but I don't have to participate in it. I don't work for anybody. Me and Amy do everything out of the house here, and uh, we don't have to answer to anybody but the listener. So uh, I thought, the hell with it. Why should I have to participate in this? So somewhere along the line, I just stopped. And it's been two years now since I've done an interview. I've asked to be quite a few, but it's easy to say no because I'm not being asked to go on Letterman or Terry Gross or anything <laughs> like that. So it's pretty easy, you know. And uh, I'm a firm believer that you can't be simply against things. You have to come up with uh, solutions that work for you in your little world, even if it's a tiny solution. You have to come up with something that's a positive because I, I want to be positive and want to bring positive things forward. So I was trying to think of some way something I could do to speak to whoever it is that likes my music. 
and to share something with them. I was sitting with my buddy, Ryan Downey, who, uh, you know, he's kind of like my younger brother from Indianapolis, but he later worked for MTV and E and a lot, he manages a lot of bands now. And we were sitting at Robert's while he was in Nashville and he starts telling me about some of the people who are doing shows and, uh, how, you know, they're able to talk to their fans and to, you know, deliver a show right to them since technology has gotten to this point. And I thought that was pretty neat. So I, I remember I, I thought about that for a couple months and then I was on tour in, in, uh, Sweden and I just started thinking, man, maybe I should do one, you know, could I possibly do a show that, uh, people would enjoy and um, so I was thinking seriously about it, and I called home, and I told Amy about it. And there's this moment when I tell Amy something, and <laughs> and she thinks it's a good idea, and then I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember I was really worried, thinking, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I – and she's like, you could do it, you know. You can do it. And uh, so a few months went by. It was a few months, wasn't it, of me doing shows. I would just – uh I tried to figure out what a show would be if I put it together, but um, I didn't want it to be interviews. I didn't, I don't want to define people. I don't like the idea of biographies that it seems kind of uh, presumptuous and egotistical that I could sit down with somebody for an hour and somehow define them in some way. But I like the idea of if they just tell stories that you do get a feel for what they're like, you know, and you kind of like the people. So I was trying to think of something that would work that way. And I put together so many different shows over the course of four months. And um, I nobody knew. There was me and Amy and maybe two other people that knew that I was working on this. And nobody knew anything about it until I went live with the first uh, episode. And then people really enjoyed it. All the people that enjoy my music, you know, really dug it and were responding well. And I promised myself I would do one episode a week for a year and uh, then decide whether I wanted to continue doing it or not. And it turned out, I thought, okay, 50 episodes will be a nice round number. I'll do 50 weeks in a row. And it's been more work than I ever could have imagined. (laughs) I mean, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I think I edited heavily and I think it makes the show way better for the listener but it takes so much time. And those early, the first half of the shows that I've done, you know, we're taking a good 12 hours just to, to edit. And it's just, you know, so it eats up a lot of my time and, but, uh, people enjoy it. So I keep doing it. And, uh, now, uh, at 50 episodes, the audience just keeps growing. You know, the people that dig it seem to dig it a lot. And it's nice to know that this particular episode will be heard by more people than any, you know, interview in any media outlet that I've ever done. And that's with me doing something by myself and not having to, you know, hope that someone asked me a good question or something. So that's been nice. And I really, like I said, I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be everything that I hoped if I walked into an interview, I wanted it to be a show that I would enjoy being on and uh, where it wasn't about the host and the host wasn't trying to get in one liners constantly and talk over you and interrupt you. And I wanted it to require a little bit of a, a little bit of an attention span for the listener or maybe it isn't for everybody. So the people that do enjoy it will enjoy it that much more. 
and um, hopefully it's become that. Okay, the funniest thing about doing this show, this really surprised me, but I saw a buddy of mine, I'm not going to name any names at all, because I don't want to embarrass anybody, and uh, <laughs> that they would be mentioned on my show. <laughs> <laughs> I have a buddy here in Nashville who is a for real music industry player guy, and he's a good guy, but he he's really in the trenches and uh, makes things happen. And I hadn't seen him for, I don't know, probably a year and a half or so, and I ran into him at the Station Inn one night, and he's like, you're not going to believe this, Otis. And I said, what? And he's like, man, I'm in this meeting, and uh, we're having this marketing meeting about some artist's of some size and the person on the other line is a for real player is the way my friend described him and if he would describe him that way that means it's even more for real than what i would think it was for real and uh, he says i'm just listening to how these people want to market their artists and one of the cornerstones is that uh we want to get him on otis gibbs's show and he says he stopped for a second and he's like what Otis has a show? What? So he immediately starts Googling, and uh, it comes up with it, and he sees it right there, and and he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, I know Otis. Maybe we can make that happen. And, uh, and of course, my immediate response was, uh, he should probably tell those people to aim a little higher for their artists (laughs) next time. But uh, that was the first time that I realized anybody in the industry gave a, you know, not to use a pun, but gave a damn about uh, this show. And it was, it was a good feeling. It was nice. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank everybody for being around for all 50 episodes. It's been a a really good time, and uh, I hope you guys continue listening. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.